You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Actor and rapper David Diggs is known for his dual roles as Thomas Jefferson and Marquise de Lafayette in the Broadway hit Hamilton. Diggs is co-creator, co-executive producer, and writer of the new television series Blindspotting, based on the 2018 movie he starred in. He joins Washington Post Live to discuss his versatile career, the frequent themes of race and class in his work, and why he looks to the words of Frederick Douglass on July 4th as the country marks its independence. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gabon, senior critic at large. And welcome to today's installment of Race in America, where I have the pleasure of speaking with actor and rapper David Diggs. As you saw in the introduction, he serves as the co-creator, executive producer, and writer of the new series, Blindspotting. Welcome, David. Thank you, Robin. How's it going? Uh, it's going very well. Um, I understand that you are in Vancouver, where I hope you're getting normal Vancouver June, July weather and not horrible heat waves. I don't know. It's been full on, full on heat wave, like 110 the other day. Um, seems to be cooling off a little bit, but yeah, it's been it's been intense. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm sorry. Well, I hope it cools down. Um, I want to start, obviously, talking about uh, the series Blind Spotting, um, which is not um, a sequel to the film, but really sort of is uh, spirals off of the film, so to speak. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit of, about the relationship between Blind Spotting, the TV series, and the film? Yeah, I mean, when this opportunity came along to um, expand the the film into a TV series, um, Raphael Casal uh, and myself, uh, who who co-created the and and wrote the film, we uh, just sort of had to ask ourselves what, if and how we wanted to dive back into this story. And one of the things we always lamented about the film was the lack of time we were able to give to the character Ashley, played by Jasmine Cephas Jones. Because um, we think she she created a beautiful character uh, who was reminiscent of a lot of the the strong women we grew up around in the Bay Area, and uh, we wanted to see more of her. But a film is so focused, um, we really had to be inside Colin's head for most of that film. So we decided to use the TV show as an opportunity to really recenter the narrative on that character, and uh, then by virtue of it being a TV show, get to explore kind of a broader section of the Bay Area than we were able to do in the film. So try, try introducing a, a, a bunch more characters that we, we wouldn't have gotten an opportunity for in a 90-minute in film, and also just kind of see more of the situations and areas that, um, that inspire us and that we, we grew up around. Well, we have a clip um, from from the, sh the show that I think really gives people a, a great sense of um, the tone and of, of Ashley, um, who um, plays a woman whose longtime partner is recently incarcerated. Um, and then we can talk a bit more about, um, particularly about this clip, but also about the many layers that I think um, speak to um, speak to us in this clip. 
So let's take a look at it and then we'll talk about it more after. Great. To me, that clip, that clip really seems to encapsulate issues of race, gender, class. Uh, I mean, it, it touches on the, the uh, criminal justice system. Can you unpack that a little bit and just sort of talk about um, some of the themes that are running through that particular scene? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's the, <laughs> sort of the climax of the second episode. So there's a lot going into that. Um, but so uh, Ashley, Jasmine's character, works as a as a concierge at an upscale hotel in San Francisco that we named the Alcatraz because <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, the, uh, and she, um, so sh this day, she just found out that her that her partner Miles is going to be sentenced to five years on a on a, a first time drug conviction. Um, while you know she overheard the lawyer um, for an, for a, another presumably like rich or wealthy client talking about how they got them a slap on the wrist for a similar thing, um, and that later at the hotel that same lawyer shows up uh and uh asks her if she'll come sleep with him while his wife's out and then later on his wife comes and asks her to uh see if she could find drugs for her so uh it, it it's a really terrible day for ashley um and the she decides after that final altercation that that's the last straw and she's going to take it out on the the room that um that that couple is staying in at at the hotel uh so um you know it it's um it is the moment in the show it's really the first time ashley is really holding it together all through the first episode and and through much of this episode she's not um they have a young son, Sean, and she's really holding it together for him. She's had to move into Miles's family's house with uh, some people who she's not used to living with, who have very different ideas of how to raise children. Um, there's a lot going on. And this is one of the few moments where Ashley really lets it out. 
um, we've established this convention of direct address in verse. Uh, and so that that are really the glimpses that we get into Ashley's inner monologue because she is such a composed character, those lonely times really that you get to see what and hear what's going on inside of her. So um, this is her moment where she gets to elaborate on all of the the frustrations that are happening at the moment um, and tr and try to get herself a, a little bit of payback, take the little bit of power that she can get in that day. And, um, and it's not, you know, um, it's not pretty, it's not, um, and it's maybe not the most sensible thing to do, but it, it, it is the choice that she made in that moment. Um, and so, that's that's what's happening. Two things struck me about her response, and one is that um, she is, you know, playing against this idea of, you know, sort of strong black women, strong women of color, and she is showing vulnerability and and hurt, and she also is angry, and you know, sort of the idea that a lot of, um, you know, people of color, whether black or Latina you know, are not allowed to express that in, um, you know, freely um, is at issue. And she is doing both of those things. Were, were those ideas important to you? Or were you thinking about those sorts of things in that moment? When that was yeah, working? absolutely. Um, absolutely. We wanted all of that to happen. We wanted Ashley to have a moment of anger um, and we didn't want to really temper it with a lot of forethought or a lot of we don't get to see women at all and particularly women of color do that on television very often and um, it was important to us to give Ashley this moment where she could really be violently angry um, and and we tried to create a circumstance where hopefully at least some people who are watching are right there with her. We try to put you in her headspace enough where you're you're actually, even though you know there's parts of it that are wrong, are rooting for this to happen um, and, and uh, understand that expression of pain uh, that's really there for, for all of us who have endured anything like this. You have, you know, family members incarcerated who have had to, you know, who have had to put our lives on hold because of situations outside of our own control or who are, you know, uh, forced to be demeaned in jobs uh, uh, by people who don't, you know, recognize the, um, who aren't aware of their own, of their own power, or their own privilege. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, it was very intentional. Um, and, and to also to give Jasmine that moment as a performer, as an actor to, to mm -hmm. really do that um, was, was important to us too. A big, a big part of this process was us trying to find things that Jasmine hadn't been allowed to do yet. When you have a great actor, you get to write for them. And, and we have that. <laughs> so the, the other part of um, the series that's particularly interesting is that it is so filled with um, the voices of women, very different kinds of women. And, uh, you know, the two co-creators are these two guys. So I, I'm wondering how you step into that headspace. I know that you mentioned um, earlier uh, that when the show was pitched, 
you, it was one of the rare times when you were sitting across from a woman of color in a pitch meeting. So I, I'm wondering if that plays in, has played into the way in which the women are portrayed or you are, you are allowed to portray them. Uh, that's interesting. I mean, we rely on the, the women connected to the project a lot. So Catherine Adair at STARS, um, is our uh, the executive who's really been championing us there and has fought for so many things for this show and we are um eternally grateful for her fight and for her notes which are always really smart um our our writers room uh consisted of mostly women and that was really important to us uh we also just um really leaned heavily on our cast um, and getting responses from them and changing things when they told us that it didn't feel right. Um, yeah, so we, we um, Raphael and I tried to be as aware as we could of our, of our blind spots and get as much help as possible to really flesh out these characters and get to know them. Um, and you know, the fun thing about television is once you do that, uh, once you really know them, it's just about putting them into situations and, and figuring out how they would respond, you know, and you get many opportunities to do that. But yeah, we, we had a lot of help um, and tried to create an environment, um, particularly Raphael as, as, as showrunner, to uh, make a place where we, we needed everybody's ideas on this, you know. Um, uh, yeah, episode three was directed by Aurora Guerrero, who is, you know, from from the Bay. So her perspective is particularly important, um, and also a woman of color. And uh, you know, even her coming in and helping to sort of refocus some of the ways that we were shooting things were lessons that we took on from there. You know, so just trying to never assume that we know everything. And when you get the opportunity to be surrounded by brilliant artists, you really want to use them, you know? And so we, we had great people and we used them all the time. <laughs> in, in this process, have there been things that um, you've learned about the way in which um, women process stress or frustration uh, or injustice that has, that has surprised you or just sort of um, been sort of something that is um, that that really wasn't on your radar. Um, that's interesting. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint one like a like a lesson I learned or something like that. But I think um, what has been really uh, useful for me, or something that I'm an opportunity that I'm very grateful for, is to have had this time. You know, as an actor, which is most of what I do uh you you get really deep into the headspace of one person and that's your job right i'm only responsible for this one character and for me that's always been male characters um and to when you write you get to take on the the emotions and the headspaces of whoever you're writing for um to get this sort of focused time to sit in the heads of women um was something that I think just made me sit in a little bit things that I were already always things that I was always aware of but but didn't really ever have to sit in you know um the 
the difference in the social acceptability of the expression of anger, right? For example, um, if I were to flip out on set today, right? I, I'm no one's probably gonna come back to the press or to my people talking about like I'm a, I'm difficult or I'm a this or I'm a whatever, right? But that's not necessarily true for the women of my show. If they were to express frustration about things. Um, the response to that is very different, right? And so getting to sit in that, the kind of, the kind of handcuffs uh, that, yeah. uh, the kind of like societal handcuffs that exist for women is, is it, it's time that I'm grateful for. And that um, I think that, that is the thing that I noticed a lot in writing is, finding moments to break those are really important and the spaces where women could talk to each other on the screen where they didn't have to be um where they where they were allowed to be less aware of the of the gaze of of, of like the male gaze that always exists on them became really important um because it was the only times where you could really have them free to not to uh, sort of release those shackles and that that I think is um anyway speaks to to something that is true of life I believe also but uh um that we see woefully rare like a little of in our in our uh in our televised art I, you you've talked a lot about the the importance of representation and um, how that sort of figures into the way that you think about your work and you've become a, a thought of a little bit as sort of you know a historian because of your work portraying. Is that true? Um, <laughs> well, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Douglass. You've you've played some pretty significant uh, uh, people from history. And in the process of that, do you feel like you have learned things that you take forward from the past into the way that you understand uh, what is going on in the country now, what's going on in the culture now? Uh, I will say that the... Um... The historical figures I've had the the good fortune to portray are thinkers and speakers and writers, um, for the most part. So they're people who left a lot of their thoughts behind um, for us to look at. Um, the ways that they were critically examining the uh, the political structures that they lived in. Um, are really the those are the things that I kind of take with me as uh, something to aspire to or something to stop being so afraid of. We seem to at this moment be really um, hesitant to allow anybody, but particularly our public figures, to criticize the country we live in, right? Particularly in the U.S., um, and to be critical of it. And I think that's a mistake. Um, and I think these people that I played knew that it was a mistake. And like, it's not like I agree with most of the shit Thomas Jefferson was saying, 
<laughs> you know, um, but he was hypercritical of the country and felt um, that it was his responsibility to be that, you know. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was in favor of re-examining and potentially changing the Constitution on a regular basis as the country changed, right? Um, but now we use him to justify a kind of strict, strict constitutional fundamentalism that, like, he wouldn't have supported. Uh, so anyway, those are the those are the things that I take with me. But the other thing about playing folks from history and and getting to do a lot of research is that you realize that. History isn't a thing. It is all, it's all, um, there's a perspective on all of it, right? And, yeah. and we are sort of brought up to think of it as facts. We're not learning facts. Um, you're learning what, uh, what was intentionally left for you and what's been filtered, right? So the, working on something like the Good Lord Bird, you realize that, you know, the Daughters of the Confederacy really did a number on how we uh, we think about the Civil War and that time period. And there's a, there's a very intentional reason why we really don't grow up learning about Harper's Ferry very much, right? Um, and that we don't know about John Brown generally as much as we should, you know? Um, that's intentional. And those are things that I think it's important to think about when we when we think about history. Um, well, we should I should mention that uh, in the Good Lord Bird, you that is where you're playing Frederick Douglass, but you also uh, recited an, an adaptation of a, a famous Douglass speech. Um, what to the slave is the Fourth of July, and we have a, a clip of your reciting that. Um, I believe some of it was written by W. Kamal Bell. Um, but if we can play a little snippet of that and then talk about it in a sec. What to my people is the 4th of July? My people who are failed every day by every country, sleepless in the long night, terrorized by fireworks. We who have cried salt baths for our kin. Look at all we have borne for you. Arms, armistice, the sweetest fruits, flesh of children, hidden away from the ugly summer of their own blood, we are on the front lines. Help me, tell me, what do we tell the children of your 4th of July? What is death to a daughter? What is river to a sea? Where is the country where my people are safe? I mean, watching, listening to those words and then watching those images, um, I, I think for some people, um, they're, very unnerving, disturbing, um, sort of a, a rewriting of history, so to speak. And yet it, it seems to, they seem to really speak to what you were just talking about, this idea that, um, you know, there is a certain act of patriotism and intellectual rigor to consider um, facts in their, con in their context and not trying to sugarcoat them. Was that part of what drew you to um, that project? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it, you know, filming The Good Lord Bird, I got to recite Douglas's actual Fourth of July speech, which is one of the great um, experiences I've ever had as an actor. And then this, a group of my friends who are also my favorite writers had done this adaptation um, of his speech to trying to premiere it on the 4th of July and asked me to recite it. And they're, they're such brilliant writers. And what they did, I think, 
that is so wonderful is just really it is Frederick Douglass was saying these same things um and that is a trip that's a trip when you think about it uh because of how little really has changed um that we can still say these same things right despite all of the progress that we've made and uh and so I think you need to look at the at the context of that progress and what it's really meant and what it really means and how far do we still have to go. And so um, I think that's the real usefulness of that piece. And besides the fact that it is beautifully written by a lot of my of my favorite writers, um, but I think um, yeah, that Douglas's Fourth of July speech is um, is one of the greatest pieces of writing I've ever read. And um, and again, being critical, e examining critically the system that he was living in, right? Our um, sort of nervousness about uh, looking critically at the country's history makes me think about um, you know your incredible work in Hamilton and the way that um, the reimagining of you know the founding story seem to draw people together, you know, across political aisles, across the political spectrum. And yet sort of the subtext of Hamilton was in fact this sort of critique of the way in which American history has always been told. Do, do you see any um, sort of contradiction between the sort of rallying cry from all quarters um, about the beauty of Hamilton and then the sort of inability to grapple with things in real time? Uh, yes, but I think that's how art works, right? You, again, if you examine the, the context of when Hamilton was made, like where, you know, um, Barack Obama shepherded Hamilton into being, right? He was the, the first to ever performance of any part of that show was performed at, at the White House for him. Uh, and um, I think that era was one where uh, a, a sort of togetherness and, and inclusivity was, was what we were, that was what America was selling. Right, that's that was up front and center. That was what we were representing, um, and so it was easy for people to buy into that. And it spoke to a lot of things that we were feeling as Americans. It was really interesting having that re-release on on Disney Plus, the film version we did of it, in the midst of the Trump era, where we had swung so far back the other way, um, and seeing the still like generally loved but seeing the different lens that people were attaching to it right and how i think sort of the more um kind of revolutionary undertones of what's going on there were came a little bit more to the forefront i think they were always in there for me when i was working on it but i think um the way i saw it discussed was a little more about the um the the radical potential of inclusivity right and what it really means to have brown bodies take ownership over the the creation of our democracy, right? And what it means for the same democracy to still be failing those bodies. Um, 
and um, so yeah, I think um, that you know, particularly art of um, marginalized people in this country has always been about how do you we do this with blind spotting too, right? It's a comedy for the most part, but we still get to have that moment with Ashley where she gets to say a whole bunch of real, and hopefully you're so enamored with her that you sit there and hear all of it, you know, and that your ears are open to it. And that's, um, you know, that's the cakewalk from slavery days, that's <laughs> minstrelsy, that's all of this, that's, there's a long lineage of this, that's the hyphy movement in the Bay Area, that's, uh, you know, the subversiveness of the early days of hip hop, that's all of this, um, there's a long standing tradition of people of color using um, the fact that one of the ways we're allowed to be uh, present and vocal in, is in popular culture in the country. The, uh, the art has always been a thing that is allowed to move um, and to spread. And so if you can code messages in there, then that's a, it's a, it's a useful way to do that. And I think Hamilton is one, there are elements of that in Hamilton as there are in, in, a, in a lot of things. <laughs> It sounds like you're you're feeling the the particular power of the arts in this moment. Um, I mean, do you feel like they've they've sort of moved into a place where they are ever more um, potent um, after sort of being silenced for such a long time because of the pandemic? Uh, I think so. Well, I think. You know, the pandemic, I think a lot of us ended up relying on art in a different way. We all, you know, people were were stuck inside and needed things to to binge watch, to, um, to distract, you know, to all of that. And I think there, we're in a moment now where there's been sort of a, a renewed attention to things in the way that, that um, in the different ways that art can be useful. Um, but also just a, a hunger for it. You know, we've, we've gotten used to, um, and now that live performance is starting to come back, you know, that's, I think, I hope people are really hungry for that. I know I am. Um, and I think there's a whole different set of experiences there that are really important. So yeah, I, well, I do I'm think there's a, we're in a moment right now. I'm afraid we're going to have to, to leave it there because I've used up all of our time and I so appreciate uh, the conversation. And um, I thank you for Washington Post Live. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And please come back at uh, three o'clock for my conversation with Karamo Brown um, for our ongoing series, The Optimist. I'll be talking to him about his mental health advocacy as well as the power of awareness and optimism. Thank you so much for joining me. And please head over to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and to find out more about our upcoming programs. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.